Good morning, Colonial. My family. I was going to make a joke about the lights, but I can't do it in light of our topic today. We're in the book of Zephaniah, and Zephaniah is a tract on the day of the Lord, a day described as darkness and gloom. But if you'll follow through to the end, you will see that it's the day of the Lord is more than just darkness and gloom. There are two sides to the day of the Lord. Well, will you turn in your Bibles to Zephaniah? Zephaniah is going to present his material in three major parts in, in this book, in the short three-chapter book. Um, the parts don't actually fit into the perfect three chapters. They overflow a little bit. So the first part, starting in verse 2, after the introduction, goes all the way through to verse 3 of chapter 2. And that's going to introduce this coming day of the Lord. What precipitates it? What kind of day is it going to be? Well, the first section is going to end with a pointed warning to Judah, the southern tribe of Israel, that she must seek the Lord if she expects to hide from God's wrath on that day. The second part of Zephaniah starts in verse 4 of chapter 2 and goes all the way through to, cha- uh, to verse 8 of chapter 3. And in this section, we see a picture of the worldwide wrath of the Lord that he's bringing to earth on account of humanity's sinfulness. The universal scale of this judgment is depicted through the Lord prophesying destruction on Judah's neighboring nations all the way around the four por- por- points of the compass, both near and distant nations. At the end of this section, the crosshairs for judgment are going to fall squarely on Judah. That incorrigible, ignorant, and thick-headed people. We'll call it the day of the Lord's side A. If you're familiar with um, the cassette tape, that's, or the record, the vinyl record, Day of the Lord's side A. But there's a second side to the day of the Lord. The third and final part of Zephaniah's prophecy, starting in verse 9, going to the end of the book, is a picture of the world and Israel in a state of renewed communion with God. Scattered nations will be regathered. Humanity will be cleared of its self-sufficiency. God's people will be renewed and settled in his creation with him at the center. So we'll call this the day of the Lord's side B. That's the whole book of Zephaniah. It's literally a tract on the day of the Lord. What can we learn from this ancient writing that the Apostle Paul deemed breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Would you give Zephaniah that attention as though it is the very word of God this morning? What can we learn? How can we be trained by it? Verse 1 begins, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Zephaniah is the only prophet to trace his lineage as far back as his great-grandfather. And it might appear that he does so maybe to flex his royal pedigree. You know, Hezekiah was one of the good kings in Israel, known for his reforms. 
However, a better explanation, I think, is that Zephaniah wants you to see who he's related to so that you can see whose side he's on. He is in line in history with the reformers in Judah's uh, line, in Judah's history, those who want to return to the Lord. Incidentally, um, this little detail about his ancestry gives us a little bit of a clue as to the fact that as uh, having a royal heritage, Zephaniah is probably living in the royal city. So he gets a first-hand witness of the condition of the spiritual, the spiritual and the political condition in, in Jerusalem. Well, the scripture tells us that King Josiah was a pretty good king as well. It says um, Zephaniah received this word of the Lord during the reign of King Josiah. Um, his great-grandfather, King Hezekiah, like I said, was known for his reforms in Judah. Well, um, Josiah is known for perhaps even greater reforms. The scripture says in 2 Kings 22 that Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in all the way of David his father and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Second Chronicles describes a little bit more about King Josiah. For in the eighth year of his reign, it reads, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and the metal images. So like his great-grandfather, King Hezekiah, Josiah was known for these great reforms in Israel. But what do you think was necessarily true for King Josiah to be known for these great reforms? Right, there, there had to be a great digression in Judah. Let's take a brief look at how bad things had gotten in Judah that demanded this, this need for these reforms or for a prophet to speak out against Judah. I'm going to read just a, a brief section of Scripture from 2 Kings chapter 23. I'm going to start verse 4. You can follow along if you'd like. I'll just read a handful of verses here. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. The kings of Judah ordained these men. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua. I could continue to reading. Look in verse 10. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to the Lord. Okay, this, this is a picture of the, the religious spiritual climate within which Zephaniah speaks within which King Josiah comes into reign. 
things had gotten really bad in Judah. It's interesting to speculate um, just how Zephaniah relates to Josiah and his reign. Was Zephaniah the the man who's responsible for inspiring these great reforms that that Josiah enacts? Or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe um, God working through Josiah um, precipitated Zephaniah speaking in, uh, in line with these reforms. Um, we, we can't really say it. It's just speculation. But what we, what we can know, what we do know, is that the disgusting and pervasive syncretism in Israel and Judah that Josiah begins his reign in is still around in some form. There are at least vestiges of it. If not, it's still present at the time when Zephaniah writes. As you, we read through the book, I think you'll be able to pick that up. Well, let's get into the body of the book. Since Zephaniah is a short book, I'm going to read through the entire book, um, pausing to just summarize sections as I go, and then we'll make uh, one main application at the end. So the first section, the coming day of the Lord, verse 2, follow along as I read. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests or those who burn incense along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, or I would argue by their king. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Now, there are actually two parts in this section that I just read. There are two parts. Uh, look at how verse 2 ends. You see that phrase, from the face of the earth declares the Lord. Now look at how verse 3 ends in the same way. From the face of the earth declares the Lord. I think those are actually um, the second half of these topical sentences for these two sections. Right? And, and, and actually there's, there's another thing that supports that separation in my mind. Look at the main verb in that first section. What is it? It says, I will utterly sweep away everything. Okay, and then look at verse 3. I will sweep away. And again in verse 3, I will sweep away. Now look I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This second section heading. Later on in verse 4, he will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. So these two sections, one verb dominates each of these sections. You kind of see two different things going on. Well, each section begins similarly, dominated by a different verb. In the first section, the Lord declares that he intends to sweep away everything. And he's going to do that in the reverse order of the way that he created have you kept, did you catch that? From the last of the living creatures God created, man, in reverse order all the way to the first of the living creatures that he created, fish in the sea. He's going to undo creation. Well, in the second section, he says he'll cut off mankind. But not just mankind in general. He is specific with reference to his own people, Judah. Something is occurring in Judah that has incited the Lord to come in judgment, in its idolatry and syncretism and outright apostasy. There are priests serving Baal, the Canaanite fertility god. There are people worshiping the luminaries of the heavens. 
There are people formerly claiming to serve Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, but then when it comes down to it, living based upon the security that their human king provides. Their people have gone as far as just giving up on following Yahweh, ceasing to ask him for help or guidance. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. This is the northern part of Jerusalem. A wail from the second quarter. A loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. And I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered. And their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. Notice the way that the Lord conveys the nature of the day of the Lord. It will be a sacrifice. A sacrifice, we know from our Bible reading, it was made by the shedding of the blood of an animal for sin. Or that was the sin offering or the guilt offering. There were other sacrifices. Well, the day of the Lord will be like a guilt offering, a sacrifice for sin. But it would seem that the victims will not be innocent sheep or rams, but human humanity. The day of the Lord is near, the text says, and it's drawing near to punish two things in particular. First, the Lord will punish the leaders, both political and spiritual, for their failure to regard Yahweh as holy and live as set-apart people. Okay, the political leaders had adopted um, customs of their neighbors, right? For, for example, the way that they would dress, maybe in the court or in the temples, they've adopted the foreign dress of their neighbors, blurring the distinction of God's people as unique The leaders at the temple were not only filling their Lord's house with deceit and violence, but they were incorporating Canaanite superstitions into their worship of Yahweh. That phrase, leaping over the threshold, is kind of a strange phrase. But it's probably a reference to a superstitious practice started by the Philistines. If you remember in 1 Samuel 5, when Dagon, their god, fell across the threshold breaking his hands and head off in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Listen to what 1 Samuel 5 verse 5 says. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So here in in Jerusalem, these priests are incorporating these superstitions. Oh, don't step on the threshold. Second, The Lord will punish those who have come to believe that he doesn't act in history. There's no consequences to following or not following the Lord. He's either powerless to do good or evil, or he um, is uninterested altogether in intervening in history. 
But this text tells us that the Lord is not indifferent toward indifference. In fact, indifference to the Lord is one of the reasons that he has marked out a day of judgment upon the world and his faithless people. Well, in faithfulness to his covenant, the Lord will bring the covenant curses of Leviticus and Deuteronomy on on, um, his people. If you read in Leviticus or in uh, Deuteronomy, you could actually read word for word, though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. This is, this is God's promise if you break covenant with me to Israel. You build houses, you will not inhabit them. You may plant vineyards, but you will not drink of their wine. Well, as the section began, the day of the Lord is near, so it concludes in the first half of verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. In the next section, beginning in the middle of verse 14, the Lord gives one of the most comprehensive descriptions of the day of the Lord. Let's read. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end will he make of all the inhabitants of the earth. This description can be summarized by asking and answering three questions about the day of the Lord. First, what will it be like? Second, why is it coming? And third, what will be the result? First, what will it be like? The day of the Lord will be filled with terrible noises. The mighty man crying aloud could be the sounds of brave warriors, once brave warriors, screaming in terror. Or it may be the sound of a jealous and mighty warrior coming to exact vengeance on the earth. It's a day characterized by the wrath of God. Five pairs of description follow. We read it's a day of distress and anguish, ruin and devastation, darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness, trumpet blasts and battle cry. Okay, second question, why is it coming? The text is so straightforward about this. The day of the Lord is coming because humanity has sinned against the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming further because mankind has incited God to jealousy by the worship of those who are not gods. Verse 18, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Third question, what will the result be? The result will be that humanity will grope around in the darkness of that day only to have their blood poured out like dust and their flesh rot. All the earthly security they've amassed will be useless on this day 
nothing humanity can do will be able to stop the full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. A full end to the inhabitants of the earth. What about God's promises? What about God's promises to his people? As long as the cycles of nature continue, you will be my people. You will be my people. I will be your God forever. What about God's promises? What about his covenant to Abram? Through you and your offspring, I'm going I'm to bless the families of the whole earth. Well, after the most harrowing descriptions of God's wrath because of sin, Zephaniah offers a potential escape to the people of Judah. Listen to verse 1 of chapter, chapter 2 here. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the, the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Seek righteousness, who, uh, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Well, Zephaniah has been accused of being a book of wrath with no gospel in it. But one uh, Old Testament scholar, I think, really helpfully answers that accusation. He says, what would a contemporary have made of the call to seek the Lord? Okay, a contemporary of Zephaniah's day. What would he have made of that call to seek the Lord? The way into the personal relationship that this call implies was well known, readily available, and divinely guaranteed. The whole tabernacle temple concept was governed by Exodus 29. The Lord was there, ready and willing to meet his people and speak with them. The appointed sacrifices were the way to draw near. The purpose of the sacrificial system was that the Lord in all his glory might come among his people and that they might hear the words of peace. Far from having no gospel, Zephaniah knew that there is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode through offering and sacrifice. The same good news that has reached fulfillment in the one sacrifice for sins that Hebrews 10 talks about. So there is a way to hide from the wrath of God for sin for Zephaniah's audience. There is a way to hide from the wrath of God. It just wouldn't come through humanity's efforts. It would come through the provision that God gave himself, that he provided. With that glimmer of hope for Judah and the world, the first section comes to a close, okay? And then section two begins. The Lord now specifies how the various nations around Judah will fare on that day. So this is day of the Lord, side A. Worldwide wrath. We're not done. Zephaniah is not finished. He wants to drive in a clear understanding of what the day of the Lord is. Look at verse 4. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures, 
with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. The Lord begins with Israel's neighbors um, to the west, the Philistines. This is how they will fare on that day. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron. There are four of five great cities in Philistia. The fifth one being Gath, which has probably been in decline, so it's not even mentioned. Well, the term Karathites that we came across is just a synonym for the Philistines, and it's probably derived from the fact that the Philistian people um, came from the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. The seacoast people. When the day of the Lord comes, the Lord will destroy Philistia until no inhabitant is left, the text says. Once a continual thorn in the side of Israel, but on this day they will be completely wiped out and the remnant of the house of Judah will dwell there like peaceful flocks. So verse 7, as we came across, gives an answer to that rising tension that I mentioned. Has God disregarded his promise that Israel would be free or Israel would be his people forever? Apparently, there will be a remnant. Well, how is that, how is that possible? There will be a remnant. Verse 7 gets a hint to us. Well, the Lord moves from west to east to Judah's distant cousins, Moab and Ammon. Look at verse 8. I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and waste forever. The remnant of my people, here it is again, shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. So nation by nation, the Lord will hold each accountable to their specific sins. Moab and Ammon taunted Israel and made boast against her territory. In this judgment, we see that God is opposed to pride. God is the great opposer of pride, to the self-sufficiency of humanity. And God will hold people accountable for the way that they treat his people. Again, in this passage, we hear about this remnant, a group of survivors from God's people. Well, in verse 12, the Lord mentions briefly another nation to the south of Judah. You also, O Cush, Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Um, mentioning Cush in such a brief way seems kind of odd, at least to our Western senses. It doesn't seem equally weighted. Um, but I think to the, the original hearers of Zephaniah's book, or his prophecy, it would have the effect of, even as far as Cush, way down south to Egypt, that's how far God's worldwide judgment is going to go. No one's going to be left out. And that's all he feels necessary to say. Finally, the Lord targets Judah's enemies to the north, Assyria. Look at verse 13. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a 
a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there's no one else. What a desolation she's become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Two weeks ago, Pastor Brent walked us through the book of Jonah, and we learned of the repentance of Nineveh. Last week, Pastor James walked us through the book of Nahum, a book entirely devoted to the destruction of Nineveh, whose repentance must have been short-lived. Well, Zephaniah, writing at about the same time as Nahum, independently confirms that same destiny for Assyria. But he frames it this time as a part of the judgment day of the Lord. See how proud Nineveh was. Again, God knows how to humble the proud. And he has a plan to do so in every case. Well, Zephaniah continues his prophecy against the nations by focusing on that oppressing city. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And if Judah wasn't paying close attention, they might miss the subtle fact that Zephaniah isn't referring to Nineveh anymore. You listen to this next section and see if you can spot a couple of hints that Zephaniah has switched addresses. He's not talking about Nineveh anymore. Look at verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. Did you catch it? The further the prophecy goes, the more uncomfortable Zephaniah's audience must have gotten. The Lord is not speaking of Nineveh anymore. He's speaking of Jerusalem, the city where he dwells. Just as the Lord spoke to Philistia about their impending judgment, woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, he says. And he now uses the same word, woe, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. The Lord is indicting Judah among the rest of the nations. She's being indicted because she's incorrigible. She won't accept correction. She doesn't draw near to her God. She's ignorant and insensitive to the fact that the holy, righteous God is living among her, and yet she twists the law for her purposes and consumes his people. And finally, she's being indicted because she won't learn from the Lord's discipline of the nations around her. Look at verse 6. I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. 
for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And unless Judah will learn from how the Lord treats the nations who do not obey him, she will be treated as the rest and gathered among them for judgment to experience the indignation of God, all his burning anger along with the nations who oppose him. Well, that that concludes section two, side A, worldwide wrath. In all the talk about the day of the Lord, however, with gloom and judgment and darkness, that isn't the only thing that characterizes that day, as we read in Zephaniah. There's another side to that day. And we get to see a peak of it starting in verse 9. The day of the Lord's side B. Worldwide worship. We'll look at this final section in three brief parts, okay? We're going to look at the reversal of Babel, the removal of the proud, and the renewal of God's people. And I'll make a final application for us this morning. So look at verse 9. It reads, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, that distant southern kingdom, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offerings. By using the term um, peoples, and a couple of the catchwords from the Bethel, or from the, sorry, from the Babel event in Genesis 11, when the Lord confused, changed the speech of the people of the earth and dispersed them over the earth, Zephaniah depicts a positive result of the day of the Lord when people from other nations, in addition to the remnant of Judah, survive the day of the Lord to call upon his name in worship. How did they survive the day of the Lord? The text says that it was by an act of God. He will change the speech of the peoples. He will somehow provide purification from their sin for the nations as well. Look at verse 11. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. On the day of the Lord, God will also cleanse and purify his people, Judah, by leaving only a people there who are humble and lowly and call on his name, who seek refuge in his name. And finally, in verse 14, God will renew his people with his very own presence again. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. 
I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes or bring back your captivity. Before your eyes, says the Lord. The great day of the Lord will not only be a gathering for judgment and cursing, but it will be a day for those who seek the Lord of great blessing and mercy. Somehow, the Lord will set aside the judgments that were against his people. No one will be left to harm or destroy or accuse on his holy mountain. Instead of shame and guilty consciences for their rebellion, God's people will be renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth as trophies of God's incredible mercy and grace. So as I bring our overview of Zephaniah to a close this morning, there are many ways that we could apply this book. Um, There's so many questions we may have of the book of Zephaniah. It deserves deep and long study. But I want us to consider just one this morning. Perhaps you've been asking yourself the question as we've worked through the text, just when is this day of the Lord? You didn't mention anything about that. When is the day of the Lord going to happen? Did it already happen? Is it yet future? To our Christian perspective, you probably went back and forth in your mind as we read the text. Maybe you're like, oh yeah, it certainly happened then. Or or maybe it it was going to happen really when, you know, Nineveh, was destroyed in 612 BC. So, so that, that, that must have been the day. Of, was that the day of the Lord? Well, sometimes it seemed like the day of the Lord was experienced in history already. But other times it seemed really clear that the day of the Lord is something yet future. It's being described in very universal and ultimate terms that have not occurred yet. Uh, well, if you're thinking that way, I think you're on the right track with the day of the Lord. Let me refer us once again to an Old Testament scholar Um, I think who who summarizes this so well. He writes, quote, In some sense, the prophets saw significant historical events as the day of the Lord. Isaiah looked forward to the fall of Babylon. Amos looked forward to um, the captivity of northern Israel. In each case, however, neither in prospect nor in retrospect was the day of the Lord fully realized. The prophet simply had in mind that these were events of such a dire nature that they exemplified a reality that would be fully demonstrated when the day finally came. But it is this ultimate day that preoccupies Zephaniah. His thinking is insistently universal. We could go through verse by verse and see five or six different areas where there's, there's no other option, but this is a universal day of the Lord in Zephaniah's mind and his thinking. He seems uninterested though, in identifying specific events. So I think that contributes to our understanding of he's really concerned about this universal day that's coming. Well, Zephaniah, whether under historical or theological prompting, has left us a tract on the day of the Lord, the climax alike of history, sin, and the purposes of God. So let me ask you, uh, Colonial, and any of you who are visiting this morning, do you believe that such a day is coming? Do you believe that our sin as a human race, is bringing the wrath of God. Zephaniah would suggest that you should believe it. 
Paul seems to think so. Uh, he told the Colossians in, in chapter 3, he warns the Christian community there, he says, to put off the deeds of the flesh. You know why? Because it's on account of these things that the wrath of God is coming. So I'd ask you, are you confident that you will be hidden from the wrath of God on that day? Are you confident that you, you will be hidden from the wrath of God that is coming? Why do you think so? Are you confident that God will set aside his judgments against you? Like he, he said he might do for Israel, that he would do for Israel. Well, what gives you such confidence that he would do that, that he would set aside what he has against our sin? Men and women, there, there's only one way to hide from the wrath of God on that great day, and it is to draw near to that same wrathful God through his merciful invitation. To come to him in repentance of your sin and place your hope for forgiveness in the substitutionary sacrifice of his son, Jesus. If you will seek the Lord in this way by relying on his provision for your sin, by repenting of your sin and relying on the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, then you can have confidence that God will hide you from his holy wrath on that day. And you can have confidence that you will experience this life of blessing with God in your midst for eternity. I just want to close with a, a quick illustration of, of, that, of that application, of that truth. Um, I play a little game with my son, Shepard. Um, he's two and a half years old. And you probably heard him in worship because he, he gets loud. Um, he, it, it's, we don't have a name for it, but I'll say, like, I'm going to get you. And he, like, gets all excited and, like, starts running away. And I'll just chase him and tickle him when I find him endlessly. And sometimes the way the game goes is I'll say, I'm going to get you. And he starts running and then he freezes. And then he turns back and runs to my arms. Because he's in, in playful fright, it's too much for him. He's got to go back to the safety of dad's arms. This is how it is with our God, who we've offended by our sin. The only way to be hidden from his wrath is to run to him and to accept the provision that he offers through his son. Because only he can provide the means to cleanse our sin and to pay for it in a, in a just way. That he can be the just and the justifier of those who call on, call on him. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we, we thank you so much for the text of Zephaniah. I pray, Spirit, that you're, you would have your way with it. Convict our hearts, exhort our hearts, assure our hearts of the, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, the righteousness that you require. Lord, in our, our sin and the hope of the gospel of Jesus. Thank you so much for providing that sacrifice. It is in Jesus that we stand forgiven and rejoice at the sure hope of spending eternity with you. Thank you, generous, merciful God, for Jesus. Amen.